Father, thank you, for, <clears throat> thank you for your grace. Thank you for songs to sing and the way that they um, just input truth into our hearts, even so that in times when we need it, it comes flowing out in a song. Uh, thank you for just magnificent topics to sing about. Thank you for the challenge even in the, in the song that was sung by the, the kids of, of who, who's going to walk as children of light. Come on, let's walk as children of light. Uh, thank you for that. Help us this week to do that, to, to remember to take that to heart. Uh, work in our, in our minds, Lord, I pray, in our hearts. Use the Spirit to convict and encourage as need be, and I pray that you give me clarity and that you would um, I just encourage all of our hearts as we look to your word now, what you have breathed out for us to learn and to grow in. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. <coughs> have you ever set foot... On a, on a very busy construction site where you've got the hustle and bustle of, of, of this work going on. Engines are, are, are roaring, hammers are banging, workers are hollering, stereos blaring, a whole range of music. Uh, power tools are squealing, that's the best part. Lumber is clattering, men are hustling and bustling about, they're climbing up ladders, they're climbing up scaffolds, they're moving stuff. Uh, managers are carrying uh, plans around, they're spreading them out, they're debating the best and most efficient ways to achieve their goals. Uh, they're, they're busy, busy, loud places. And if you spend too much time in a construction site, uh, you get a headache, especially if you don't have earplugs. Uh, you feel overwhelmed distracted. It's, it's hard to, to really focus on one thing, one task at hand. If you're trying to have a conversation, there's, there's all this stuff going on around you that, that uh, distracts you from that. Our lives are so often like a construction site in that way. There is so much going on. There's so much clatter, so much noise in our hearts, our minds, and our lives, that that same type of result happens. In the midst of our personal work sites, so often the, the thing that we have trouble focusing on, so often the, the thing that gets so distracted away from is, is the task and responsibility of contentedly serving and worshiping the Lord. And this evening we're going to look to the Lord. We're going to receive some instruction and some encouragement as to, as to this exact scenario. We're going to see what hushes that noise, what, what quiets the excessive noise and, and also reveals a genuine inner stillness as we focus on the main task in our life as redeemed children, serving and worshiping God. I invite you to turn to Psalm 131. Psalm 131, we're going to read those three verses together, and I would like for us to uh, read it out loud together. Now, when you read a psalm, before we do that, if there is a superscript, then we start with that, okay? So we start, you got Psalm 131, then we go, a song of ascents of David, and then psh, away we go, okay? So we'll start with a song of ascents, all right? A song of ascents of David, O Lord... My heart is not proud, nor my eyes haughty, nor do I involve myself in great matters or in things too difficult for me. Surely I have composed and quieted my soul. Like a weaned child rests against his mother, my soul is like a weaned child within me. O Israel, 
hope in the Lord from this time forth and forever. All right, now that you're all probably at Psalm 131, let's read that together again. I, I would like for our voices to, to ring out as one, to, to, to read with, with meaning and inflection as we consider what this says, all right? Let's read it again. A song of ascents. Here we go. A song of ascents of David. O Lord, my heart is not proud, nor my eyes haughty, nor do I involve myself in great matters or in things too difficult for me. Surely I have composed and quieted my soul like a weaned child rests against his mother. My soul is like a weaned child within me. O oh, Israel, hope in the Lord from this time forth and forever. Amen. The first thing to notice here is the superscription. I think these are, I believe these are original to the text, and they help us uh, to understand the, the context and the framework of this psalm. And so we're going to take a look at that now. It says it's a psalm of ascents, which means it's one of 15 psalms intended to be sung as Jewish worshipers made their pilgrimage to Jerusalem, which uh, does not necessarily mean everybody went up in terms of uh, longitude because Jerusalem was actually in the southern area, but Jerusalem was on a higher altitude than most of the surrounding areas. So a song of ascents going up to Jerusalem. This is one of 15 psalms meant to be used for the purpose of focusing hearts and being a catalyst for that journey to worship God. They're, they're intended to be the worship language of a person intent on glorifying the Lord. This is a psalm of a sense of David, the king, the prophet, the musician, the man after God's own heart, the one to whom God promised an eternal throne and a descendant that would be the Messiah. The identity of David as the author is going to come more into play later. So Psalm 131 here, it helps us understand three attitudes of a contented worshiper. And I believe this to be a, a sort of a, a two-edged example for us in that these three attitudes are both objects of pursuit as well as, as objects of fruit in our lives. That is to say, we, we cultivate, we seek to cultivate contentment by intentionally practicing these attitudes, but we also see evidence of contentment when these attitudes naturally occur uh, within us. And the first attitude that we're going to see is an attitude of, of humility. Think back to that construction site of your life. All the noise, all the hubbub, all the activity, much of that, much of that chaos is the result of pride and arrogance in life. See, pride and arrogance says, you know, I'm in control. I must achieve such and such. I have to take action in order for something to come about. I deserve more. I ought to be given praise. That's all the, all the clutter that pride and arrogance brings in. And the result of these thoughts is noise, overwhelming, obnoxious, life-shattering noise. But David says that he is not proud, nor are his eyes haughty. David has a low self-estimation here. He says, my, my, heart, my heart is not proud. Talked about that a little this morning about the heart being that, that mission control center that everything flows in and everything flows out of. David's heart, his perspective of his self, it's not exalted, it's not high. 
He's not arrogant when he looks within himself, and neither is he arrogant when he looks around him at others. His eyes are not haughty. He doesn't look down his nose at others. But that's interesting because David is the king, so everybody really technically is beneath him. He's the top of the ladder. It'd be very easy for him to be haughty and to look down on others, but his heart is not proud. His eyes are not haughty. He has this low self-estimation of who he is, and he also has a low self-aspiration. He doesn't involve himself in great matters or in things too difficult for me. And this is further evidence of David's humility here. He doesn't aspire to be in control of everything. Let, let that percolate just for a moment. I struggle with that. I, I, want, I want all my ducks in a row, and I want my five-year and my seven-year and my ten and maybe even my 15-year plan laid out, and I want it to go that way. Uh, I have had those plans destroyed <laughs> frequently enough to realize the, the futility enough, and God has been gracious to, to, to help me understand some of the truth of this. But he doesn't have an aspiration to be in control of everything. He doesn't aspire to have an answer for everything. He doesn't even have an aspiration to be able to explain everything or conform everything to his timeline or, or his expectations. This is not saying that he's not a part of weighty matters or significant matters. It's not like he only consigns himself to just frivolous, little, easy, comfortable things. I mean, he, he is the king. And since he is the king, he's involved in some significant matters. But it is saying that he, he doesn't see himself as, as being in control of them. He doesn't see them as being his responsibility. But rather, he's willing to completely trust them to the sovereign hand of his God. Case in point, consider David's rise to the throne. Okay, David was a young lad. And, and Saul obviously fell into disfavor with the Lord. And Samuel tells Saul, look, you're, you're done. God said he's, he's done with you. So David's a young boy, and Samuel comes, and he, he looks through all of David's brothers. He says, nope, 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 nope. God says, no, not them. You're looking on the outside. I'm looking on the inside. And then David finally comes, and God says, that's the one. So Samuel anoints him. David has the right at that point, he is the anointed king of Israel. And yet, it's not just days, not just weeks, not just months, not even just a year, but it is years, over a decade, before he actually becomes king of Judah. And then it's more time after that before he becomes king of the unified kingdom because he has to deal with, with all, the, all the, 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 the stuff that happens with Saul and his family. And in those years, David, who has been anointed king, he's, he's getting chased around like a bandit. He's, he's, he's living in caves. He's sheltering with the Philistines. He's got opportunities to kill Saul, too. But does he involve himself in those things? Does he involve himself in matters that are too difficult for him, like saying, hey, this is my timeline. I should be king. I was anointed. You, whoosh, you're out. Well, David doesn't involve himself in that. He says, I am totally content with where I am, where God has me today. Yes, I'm anointed, but I'm not going to manipulate this situation. 
This is not my matter. This is not my situation. That's God's. And so he waits. He waits in absolute contentment and trust that God has that under control and in his timing. As long as God saw fit, David would wait. That's amazing. David, the ruler of the kingdom, the one who receives revelation from God, the one receiving the permanent covenant from God, had a low self-estimation, and he had low self-aspiration also. He was a humble man. And so keep in mind, this is, this is a psalm of ascent. And so he's saying, as I walk, as I walk to Jerusalem to worship my God, I am coming in humility. I'm, in, I'm coming with an awareness of, of who I am and what I have the capacity to control as I come to worship God. And I think of how often we make our journey to, to Jerusalem, our, our pilgrimage on a weekly basis to come and to worship the Lord. And that journey is just fraught with noise because of our pride, because of our high view of self and all that we think we deserve, because of our high view of life and what we think it ought to look like and how we can accomplish that. Even, even in the car ride on a Sunday morning, boy, it can sneak in there. And yet the contentment that seeps from the pores of this psalm is the contentment of a worshiper who has a realistic view of self and of God. God is high, self is low. God is, is capable, self lets God be capable. And this attitude of humility, I think, like I said before, it's both a means and a manifestation of contentment. But we also see here, we see an attitude of peace. Look at verse two. It says, surely I have composed and quieted my soul like a winged child rests against his mother, my soul is like a winged child within me. David emphatically states that he has implemented peace in his soul. This is not something that he sat around kind of waiting for, waiting for some bath of peace from heaven to happen to him. He says, surely. This is almost oath-like. Indeed, yea, verily. This is something that he's been purposeful to do. He has composed and he's quieted his soul. Both of these verbs refer to a similar concept. David brought his heart into a state of being. He took action on himself and he brings his heart into a state of being. His soul had been in chaos, been tossed by the storms of life, stirred up into a cacophony of competing noises, but he implements peace. He composed his soul. So where it was rough, where it was tossed up, where it was disturbed, he soothed it and he leveled it off. He brought it into a new state of repose. He quieted his soul. It was noisy. It was agitated. It was tense. And he brought it into a state of stillness, of motionless, quiet. This effect is, is, is pictured by a familiar story. When Jesus speaks to the storm on Galilee, this is not the meaning of this text, but it's a picture of what this effect is. The waves are crashing, the boat is, is tossing, the disciples are crying out, and Jesus says, 
hush, be still. And he quiets, he composes the storm and the water and the boat and they level off, they soothe, they quiet. They're settled. How, 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 do, how do they do this? How does the, disciple, the, the, the psalmist here accomplish this? He implemented this peace. Why, how did he? Um, there are other psalms that, that illustrate this kind of soul speak, as it will. Oh, my soul, why are you disturbed? And then he addresses his soul, and he seeks to implement that peace. But I want to look at Jeremiah. I preached on this before, and the, this example is, is striking to me. Jeremiah, in Lamentations chapter 3, he's surveying the, the destruction of Jerusalem. Everything is laid waste. If there's a man whose, whose soul is, is distressed, this is Jeremiah. Everything's gone. Everything's totaled. And he says this. He says, remember my affliction and my wandering, the wormwood and bitterness, oh, the agony there. Surely my soul remembers and has bowed down within me. There is some soul angst going on in Jeremiah as he looks at that. And then he says, this I recall to mind. He's speaking to himself. He's implementing peace to himself, and therefore I have hope. What is it? The Lord's loving kindnesses indeed never cease. For his compassions never fail. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore I have hope in him. Jeremiah exemplifies a worked up, distressed soul that, that, that's calmed by the implementation of peace. Not through self-will, not through a, a mantra of, of self-capability or some sort of reminder of what Jeremiah is able to accomplish, but through purposeful meditation on God and on his character. And I think that's what the psalmist does here also. This meditation brings soothing to a pained soul. It brings peace to bedlam. It brings quiet to cacophony. A modern way to, to implement this, you could, of course, read the Psalms and meditate on scriptures. There's a song by Keith and Kristen Getty, though, that we sing that is a great address of this. It says this. It says, still, my soul, be still. And do not fear, though winds of change may rage tomorrow. God is at your side. No longer dread the fires of unexpected sorrow. Still, my soul, be still. Do not be moved by lesser lights and fleeting shadows. Hold on to his ways with shield of faith against temptation's flaming arrows. Still, my soul, be still. Do not forsake the truth you learned in the beginning. Wait upon the Lord and hope will rise as stars appear when day is dimming. God, you are my God. And I will trust in you and not be shaken. Lord of peace, renew a steadfast spirit within me to rest in you alone. It's a good example of speaking to your soul, of implementing that peace. David goes on to illustrate this peace that he's been able to implement. It's like a weaned child. He says this, Literally, like a weaned child against his mother, my soul is like a weaned child against me. How many of you have ever fed a hungry infant? 
That's one of the most agitating things in the world to me, that that infant stage before it's fit because the arms are moving and the feet are kicking and that ah, 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 that noise that you can't do anything to stop it until you feed it. That's, that's, that's agitation. That's infant angst. That, that, that baby has a need that it wants to be addressed. It tosses, it turns, it cries out, it thrashes its little arms and legs, and you can't do anything to soothe it, soothe it except feed it. But those movements, they, they cease after a child is weaned. And then the child looks to its mother for comfort, for peace, for the safety of a relationship that has been founded upon past experience of provision and care. <coughs> I saw a sweet example of this the other day. Um, Linnea, my five-year-old, was not feeling too well the other day. And all she wanted to do was repose, recline, lay on her mom. Didn't, didn't need something. Just wanted to be at peace there. And that was such a sweet picture. So still, so quiet, trusting, calm, deriving, deriving comfort there. And in the same way, having developed an implementation of peace, David's soul rests within him. Being fed a continual portion of God's character and being soothed in times of distress, David's soul is now mature to the point that it reposes safely in the knowledge of God and his love. But David's been purposeful to cultivate that pattern and that understanding. So David has an attitude of peace, which surely goes hand in glove with this attitude of humility that we talked about. And then these things pair together to, to, to result and to, to fuel an attitude of encouragement. Have you, have you ever been around someone who they have such a walk with the Lord and such a contentment in life that, that they just have to share some of that with you in the hopes that they'll, they'll infect you in a most wonderful way? I know a few of those people, and I love to be around them. You get around them and and you're just encouraged about who God is and what he can do and how I ought to pursue that and I ought to see that and I ought to feel that. That's, I love to see that, that, that theology and action that they exemplify. And this is David here. He's humble. He's peaceful. And these provoke and demonstrate contentment in such a way that, that encouragement of others becomes a part of life. Israel, he says, my people, he cries out. His heart is for his people to know and experience the same thing, to experience what he knows. And what is that? He says, hope. Hope. This is an informed foundation for their trust, the platform for all their contentment, their humility, and their peace. Hope is not used here in the sense of an unfounded desire for a possible outcome like, gee, I hope I win the lottery this month. You have no idea. That's not sure. That's just an unfounded thought that would be nice if it happened. But here it's used in the sense of a steadfast sureness and awareness of an outcome that is certain. And the outcome is sure because of who the hope is in, Yahweh, the God of Israel. David doesn't encourage hope in man because man fails. David doesn't encourage hope in horses 
the power of the day because horses fail. David doesn't encourage hope in riches because riches fail. But David encourages hope in God because God never fails and has such hope in God never fails. And you note too that it's not a momentary hope. It's a command to hope at this moment, from this time, forth, and forever. Hope now, David says, and keep hoping, and keep hoping, and keep hoping until one day that hope comes to fruition, which it will, because that hope is in the Lord. So we see this attitude of encouragement. These people are going to worship. They're going to Jerusalem. They're ascending the hill, and they're heading to sacrifice and to worship God. And they say, we come with humble hearts, and we come with peaceful souls because our hope is in the Lord. And because of that, they then said, hey, all you people walking with me, hope in the Lord from this time forth and forever. It's an attitude of encouragement. And there are those around you who need your encouragement. They need your encouragement in the week as they approach Sunday. If you've cultivated that humility and peace and the resulting contentment is something you can share, then share it. People around you need that and they need it time and time again. They need it patiently. They need it graciously. They need it lovingly. But they need that encouragement. That tired mother, the worn grandmother, the anxious father, the concerned single, the prideful youth, the aloof man. We, we all need encouragement. Don't hope in yourself. Hope in God. We need to hear this. Look at the contentment it brings. Look at the humility it brings. Look at the peace it brings. Hope in God. Encourage once, encourage again, but you have to have that contentment and that humility and that peace to be able to encourage it. So cultivate it, pursue it, and then rejoice when, as that two-edged thing goes, as you cultivate it and as you develop those attitudes with your awareness of who God is, then you develop that contentment which brings more humility and more peace with which you can then go and share and spread and encourage that. Psalm 131 is the attitude of a contented worshiper who lived hundreds of years before Christ was even born. It's all the more the attitude of a believer who lives 2,000 years after Christ was born, of a believer who has been redeemed, who is indwelt by the Holy Spirit, who's been given every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, who's been given the promises of God that we can read so abundantly in, in, in such a large quantity of, of, of God's communication. Is this your attitude? As, as your week approaches worship on Sunday, can you say, having quieted the bedlam of your soul, your own personal construction site, can you say this, God, I don't think too highly of myself. I don't think I'm more capable or powerful than I really am. I really have soothed and stilled my soul. I rest and I trust in you completely. I encourage others to do the same and I hope in you alone. 
or maybe uh, David Pallison's contrastive anti-psalm is true. Self, my heart is proud. I'm absorbed in myself. And my eyes are haughty. I look down on other people. And I chase after things too great and difficult for me. So, of course, I'm noisy and restless inside. It comes naturally. Like a hungry infant fussing on his mother's lap. Like a hungry infant, I'm restless with my demands and worries. I scatter my hopes onto anything and everything all the time. So I encourage you, apply Psalm 131 and its truths to the noisy clamor of your life. Acknowledge the attitude of a contented worshiper. And if you don't recognize them in your life, then, then, then seek to cultivate them. Read this. Understand who God is and who we are and cultivate that humility and cultivate that peace and then rejoice in the resultant contentment and the resultant joy and the resultant hope and then encourage that. And may God give us grace as we seek to do that. Let's stand together. We're going to read this psalm one more time and hopefully hopefully with a little greater understanding make it a prayer you address the Lord oh Lord and then make it a time of encouragement oh Israel hope so let's read Psalm 131 together starting with the superscript a song of a sense of David oh Lord My heart is not proud, nor my eyes haughty, nor do I involve myself in great matters or in things too difficult for me. Surely I have composed and quieted my soul like a weaned child rests against his mother. My soul is like a weaned child within me. O Israel, hope in the Lord from this time forth and forever. Amen. Let's pray, and then we'll sing a song of response as well. Lord God, you are the worthy recipient of our hope. You are high and exalted. You are powerful and capable. Help us to remember who we are before you, lowly, weak, humble, and yet so tremendously blessed to be able to walk this life with you, to be able to be humble before you and to be able to have peace in who we are in you and and who you are in and of yourself. Father, bring that spirit into each one of us, we pray. Convict us of areas of pride. Convict us of areas of, of just too much noise in life and help us to be able to still it by the truths of your word and by the truths of your character. And then, God, please give us a a heart of encouragement, Lord, within this church body and then without the church body as well, to be beacons who, who, who shout out, God is where true hope is. God is where salvation is. God is where my hope is found. All you around me, hope in the Lord from this time forth and forever. Lord, please, Work that spirit within us. Work it in me. I need such assistance and help in this. Lord, to work in my own soul and to be an example for my family. 
Give grace in that, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen.